All right, good morning. Let's get started. I am Dr. Kelly Hare, and I direct the Boone Center for the Family here at Pepperdine. The Boone Center for the Family is a relationship, education, training, and resource center. And we serve the Pepperdine community and the church locally and nationally. All of our programs integrate theology and the best of psychology. Uh, as a part of directing the Boone Center, I also direct the Relationship IQ program, which is our program for young adults. We help young adults live out healthy relationships and have a curriculum to that end. Um, I've got to step in front of here. I feel like I need to be closer to you all. Um, okay, so I am curious to hear a little bit about people's interest in this presentation because I realized this title, Lamenting Dateonomics, what is that? And I didn't see the blurb anywhere. So I'm realizing you chose to be in this room based on the title. So I'm curious to hear kind of some thoughts of people's interest in this conversation or what you think this topic is about based on the title. Yes. I can start. Hi, I'm David. Uh, I actually work here. And so part of the interest of me being here is because I work with students in student affairs. And so um, and many questions that I ask, um, that I'm asked, is regarding uh, relationships and just navigating communication, uh, you know, interpersonal communication and conflict with peers. And so, um, and personally, this also interests of mine. Uh, it's kind of what I studied as well a little bit. And, it's, and so, uh, so personally, it's kind of an interesting um, topic for me ongoing, but also here, you know, as I apply that in my uh, work and career. So, yeah. Great, thank you, David. Yes. Um, I'm Jill, and uh, I was interested because my daughter, uh, she's 24 now, but she graduated from Harding University, and I noticed that like there were a lot more young women than men on campus, and just the whole dating thing had changed so much from when I was that age, and so I'm just interested to see what you have to say about it. Thank you, Jill. Just take one more. Yes. Yeah, so I, the blurb was on the app. Oh, so it was on the app. Yeah, okay. So I did find it that That's way. All um, online and, right, yeah, okay. and I work in a university context in Oregon, and so similar. Uh, we're talking about trends. How do we engage with uh, young men? How do we balance um, these things? And then I have a couple of cousins who even went here at Pepperdine and are still single. And so yes. I have a lot of these conversations. Okay, good, good. And that's my hope, is that as you're walking alongside young people who are dating, they're interested in marriage, and it's hard, and they're struggling, and you're walking alongside them and wanting to support them, my hope is that this time this morning will help you have a better understanding of some of the dynamics that are at play, and why they're there, and what to do about it when it comes to dating culture, and then singleness as well. So because dating culture is what it is, we're going to understand that people end up, many people end up in a prolonged state of singleness um, and don't desire to be there. So we're going to talk about that, the nature of that experience and how to um, live well in that space. We'll hit our next slide. So a quick kind of note here, I want to recognize that there is a great variety in folks who are single. It is not a one-size-fits-all experience. Singleness differs based on Men and women, the experience as a man or a woman being single is different, which we're going to talk about a lot today. Uh, someone who has always been single or someone who is single again because of divorce, divorce or death, that's a different experience. A person who desires marriage versus someone who genuinely experiences a call from God to celibacy, that's a very different experience of singleness. And finally, the, a person's age can greatly impact their experience of singleness. 
The literature shows that age 28 to 34 is what's called the limbo years, that during these years, a person can feel extra turmoil around singleness, wondering, will I get to have kind of the typical pathway of marriage and family if they desire that? Because, it's, and it's not that a person can't get married and have kids after age 34, but it's going to feel and look a little different, getting married and having kids older. Um, I got married at 33, so I was, I lived the limbo years, and it was hard, hard, hard. Um, going back to the first bullet here, there has been a very, very significant increase, and I think it's higher than 350% now, of increase of single adults in the country. And we could say, well, is this because nobody wants to be married anymore? Well, there are many people who are no longer interested in, interested in marriage, but there are many people who do want to be married, and they're struggling to find a spouse. Um, and, and the absence of a spouse is these days can be felt, there can be greater loss associated because people are looking to a spouse to meet more needs. Financially, uh, socially, emotionally, people are looking to a spouse because, to meet needs because of the breakdown in relationship of community um, and just kind of the world that we live in. So it, the, the loss of, or the absence of marriage can be felt more acutely. Now, if you'll hit the next slide. Okay, so the first part of the conversation is going to be based on this book, Dateonomics. I read this, I think, in 2017-ish, 18, I don't remember. This was a page turner for me. I remember distinctly reading this book and just was like, oh my goodness, this is so fascinating, interesting. And I also had the experience, I was married at the time, I think I've only been married a year or two. I'm married, yeah, when I read it. Um, I also had this awareness of, oh my gosh, if I was reading this when I was single, I would have been really scared and like really, really stressed out and depressed and anxious. But thankfully, as we'll get to, there's really good news here. Understanding these dynamics is very empowering to say, okay, so what can we do if we understand what is true? So when I thought about bringing this material first to Pepperdine students, I thought through like, oh my goodness, how are students going to react if they hear what this book talks about? Like this could be really disturbing, upsetting, anxiety provoking. Um, and it allowed me to think about, pushed me to think about, is truth worth sharing even when it's uncomfortable? And yes, truth is good. Truth is empowering. Um, you'll hit the next slide, Mauricio. Um, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of our need for grace and salvation allows us and empowers us to repent and to ask for forgiveness and know Christ. Um, so sometimes truth starts in a really uncomfortable place, knowing that we are separated from God, that we are in our sin, but knowing that allows us to reach for Christ and embrace him and receive forgiveness, etc. And that the basic idea that truth is good and, and, and at least a freedom is true beyond salvation in and of itself. So we want to remember that, like, if, if you're a single woman or you're walking with single women, you hear some of these realities, you're like, oh my goodness. But we're going to talk about lots of strategies and how to live in the midst of um, some of these dynamics. The next slide. So key principles. Truth is good, even if it doesn't make us feel good. If we get a diagnosis from the doctor, cancer, or something painful or difficult, it leads to the way forward. We now know what we can do. We can have treatment, even though that truth of the diagnosis is not cool and not fun and uncomfortable. It empowers us to move forward. So truth is empowering. God is the God of the extraordinary. Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish. Uh, David defeated Goliath. 
These are extraordinary things that we see that God does in the Bible. And God also works kind of in the ordinary. We think of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of in basic wisdom for how to live and the way the world works and what will happen. Um, God works through the ordinary of diet and exercise, influencing your health. But God can also miraculously heal a person in a way that's surprising and doesn't make sense. We want to hold on to the truth that God is the God of the extraordinary and the ordinary. And also, God allows and uses suffering to bring about good. And we see this most acutely with Christ on the cross. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Awful. Death. He didn't deserve it, etc. But the most amazing good was happening in that horrific suffering. Okay, we'll hit the next slide. Uh, so we're going to talk about dating from an economic perspective. So this is not sexy to think about the economics of dating, just the down and dirty, how the ordinary ways that life work influences dating culture. Um, so we're going to, that's hence the title, Dateonomics. And we're especially going to look at the economics of supply and demand given the gender ratio gap on college campuses of 60-40, that there are 60% women, 40% men on college campuses. That's true here. Pepperdine, Pepperdine is not an exception. It is par for the course. Uh, okay, we'll hit the next slide. So here's Pepperdine's data from the fall of 2022, this school year. Um, you can see the breakdown, so they're 59, 41% looking at everybody all together. You'll hit the next slide. Again, this is when you're walking with college students, most of their campuses look just like this. Okay, so let's remember how supply and demand works before we think about it in the dating world. We often think about the real estate market, people selling houses, people buying houses. There are lots and lots of houses on the market, and there are a few buyers. We call this a buyer's market because the way the dynamics are going to play out, it's going to be in favor of the buyers because they're in demand. There are a few of them, and there's lots of houses. So what are some of the things that are going to be a little bit different in this real estate market? What do you think of? Think if you've bought or sold a house. Well, you'll get better price because sellers are trying to compete for you. Yes. You're going to get a good price. Choice. Choice. So better terms. The sell you might ask the seller, like, you know, I like the pool table. Could we uh, include that in the deal? And you might get it. So the dynamics are different based on the supply and demand. So let's take the opposite. So let's say you've got very few houses and you have lots and lots of buyers. It's a seller's market. So what happens in this? Prices go up. Prices go up. As is. As is. Nobody has to make repairs. It's easy. They can have extra terms. Okay. So that's how the housing market works, kind of in a typical, the fluctuation of supply and demand. And let's say we have lots and lots of houses and few buyers. Because the buyers are getting great deals, this drives more people to become a buyer. Because they say, wow, look. I can really get a really great deal in the house. I should enter into the buyer's market. And then things kind of fluctuate and balance out. And there's other factors, of course, at play. So let's take this concept of supply and demand and apply it in a situation like rent-controlled apartments. So I actually was never familiar with rent-controlled apartments until living in California. Uh, but this is where the city, uh, the government, comes in and says, we're going to tell the landlords, the extent to which they can raise rent. 
So this is messing with supply and demand. This is an external force coming in and saying, landlords, you can only raise rent by a certain percent. So what's going to happen in this market? How are the dynamics going to be impacted when the landlords have to keep prices low? How it really works is people come in, the landlords can set the price of whatever they want, but then they can't raise the rent. I'm not going to repair anything if I'm a landlord. Bingo. Why would I repair anything? Because I would actually rather my renters leave so I can bring somebody else in, charge more. So why would I want to repair things? I want to frustrate them. I don't care if they stay. I can have another renter tomorrow. So I'm going to do what I want. Like, I don't have to be faithful. I don't have to be accountable. Of course I can be. But the way the market is working, it's not in that direction for them. So they can set very high deposits and say, oh, you have to very have a very, very high deposit to rent. You have to have a really perfect credit score to rent. Oh, and if you have a pet, a cat or a dog, no. Because we have plenty of people who are flocking to us. So it's a very different dynamic. It's a very different experience based on how supply and demand is being set in a certain way from the government rent control. Okay, you'll hit the next slide for us. So let's think about, or we'll pause on that. Let's think about what this does to the dating world. If we have 60% women, 40% men. When it comes to dating and people are looking to pair and get to know each other, who has the power? Men, because they're in demand. Okay, so we're going to unpack this in an extent. But let's consider first, how do we get here? What is the history? What is the story behind 6040? So in the 1960s, you'll hit, if you'll hit the next slide so you can see kind of history. In the 1960s, we had twice as many men in college than women. So when we say dating is different today, it really is, based on the impact of men and women being present on campus. So in the 1960s, two times more men than women. But at the time, the social script was, the woman works at home, she's with the kids, she gets married early, and then the man is the one who's earning money, and so why does the woman need to go to college? And also, apparently, there was discrimination for women coming to college. I know that from what I read, but I don't know the details of the discrimination itself. But apparently, there was discrimination against women coming to college. So between the social script and discrimination, we had twice as many men in college than women. Then, in the 1960s, enter birth control. All of a sudden, we've separated sex from children, children from sex. And now, the drive to get married goes down because people are able to choose without quote, the risk of children. Again, it's not a terrible language to describe it, but that's how people experienced it. Of, oh, I can have sex, I can have all these things of marriage, I don't have to worry about having a kid, so why get married? So there's a shift here. So what this is called is the college wage premium for women increase. The idea for a woman is like, oh, okay, so maybe I should go to college because I may not get married right away and I'm going to be supporting myself and needing money. So there's a little more drive and interest to go to college. The college wage premium is increasing. In 1972, with Title IX, discrimination against women in college stopped or was greatly diminished. So now we're changing the social script and discrimination. This would make sense of how we could get to 50-50, but that doesn't explain how we could end up with more women than men. So you'll see kind of where the crossover is. 1981 is where we've got perfectly even men and women. 
um, this was roughly when my parents would have been in college. They would have been finishing. So when I think about my parents' experience, their college world was 50-50. There's a man for every woman, and vice versa. That's a certain dynamic at play. Okay, so what happens next in the story? How do we end up with more women? Um, as things turn out, the education system favors women based on biology and the social elements of education, that women kind of naturally fit better in the school environment based on how they're made and socially. Also, there are more jobs, typical male jobs, that can earn more money than t without a college degree than typical jobs for women that don't require a college degree. So there's more kind of opportunity and possibility for men without needing a college degree to earn money. So this is part of the story of how we've wound up at 60-40, totally reversing from the 1960s when there were more men. Um, okay, you'll hit the next slide. So let's talk in particular. How is college dating campus impacted by 60-40? What do you all think? What comes to mind when you, when you think about the fact that men are in demand and women are in oversupply? Just the natural way the world works is supplying to you. What might happen? My girls might choose a guy quickly and settle for one that's not the greatest because she doesn't have many to pick from. Yeah, she feels she might and she might be a little more aggressive to get it, feeling like I gotta find one and I gotta make this happen because there aren't many men out there. So I've gotta do more. I've gotta work harder. And oh, you know what? How I look really matters. Because I'm being scrutinized that men have so many to choose from. So how I appear really matters. Oh gosh. That's stressful. What would it be like to be a man in this environment? How's that gonna feel? There's so many women out there. You don't have as much pressure to uh, there's other if one doesn't work out, you've got another one. Lack Next. of commitment? Yeah, can, lack can, of commitment. I can wait longer. I can wait, yeah. I don't need to commit. I don't need to wind down her. I don't really need to treat her well because if it doesn't work, I can have a little more. And this, isn't, this does not sound pretty or nice. This is just kind of the normal way life can work when a person's not being mindful and intentional and going with the flow of the way the culture and the economic dynamic is set up. So there are going to be more hookups if traditionally not always the case, but men tend to be more interested in sex and the physical relationship. And so they can feel like, oh, yeah, I can have this. And the woman can feel like, well, I better give this or I'm going to lose him. And am I going to be able to find another him? So the woman's experience of dating is a bit more stressful and anxiety provoking. Am I going to be able to get a man? And the back of this book says, I like this quote. It's not that he's just not that into you. It's that there aren't enough of him. A helpful way of understanding um, the experience. There are more out-of-wedlock births in this type of environment. Uh, 
less marriage, people are getting married later. And let me look at my list. I think you guys mentioned a whole bunch of them, but let me see if we missed um, any of, I thought I set this out. I did not, hang on, I wanna make sure. Uh, hookup culture, men less are less committed. Women perceive less commitment from men, and they're right, that's what's happening. Um, women feel pressure for perfect appearance. Women can feel a sense of shame if they're not dating. They can feel like, what is wrong with me? Why isn't this happening? Um, there are fewer dates. Less money is spent on dates. Um, women are treated more poorly. Women tend to be the aggressors. Long-term relationships aren't ending in marriage. Um, so lots of different dynamics, and even Rachel. The, like female-female relationships could be affected as well, just because it's like sense of competition. competition. Yeah, you're yeah. my competition in my in my female right. friendships. Yeah. All right, if you'll hit the next slide. So I remember my first year at Pepperdine, I was a visiting professor, and I remember students, ladies coming, and we would chat, and they would be lamenting like. There are no men at Pepperdine. Why am, am I not dating? All of this, and they would say, "But when I leave Pepperdine, it's going to get so much better. When I leave Pepperdine, it's going to be so much better." And you know, I kind of more or less agreed with them and kind of thought, "Well, that's probably true." But when I read this book, I realized, "Whoa, that's not true at all. It's actually going to get worse because what we find out that socially." People tend to hang out with others who have the same educational backgrounds. People, if you've gone to college, you tend to hang out with people who have college degrees. Often, not exclusively, but people tend to create social circles based on educational attainment. So you take all of these country, or all of these colleges across the country producing graduates at a 60-40, you put them all out in various cities and towns, and people tend to still hang out with folks who graduated from college. So the dynamics the same. It's not changing. But it gets worse. Because what happens? Some people do get married. So if we have six women and we have four men and we take a couple out, so this couple gets married, they're out. Watch what happens to our ratio. Because we're removing one to one. So our ratio actually gets more skewed as time goes on. Yikes! So this is what would have this would have freaked me out if I read this when I was single. To know that every year that passes, if we're just looking at ratios, it's getting worse. The dynamic is getting stronger in the wrong direction. Yikes! But remember, and this is what's really important and grounding. It's not that there's 60% women in the world and 40% men. It's education. It's education. It's people with college degrees that this is true of. So that's going to be important to remember. Okay, so when you're thinking about walking with young people, especially women, and they're like, oh my gosh, dating, it's so hard. Where are the men? Yeah, that's right. They're not crazy. Things are different. And why is there so much hookup culture? an emphasis on physical appearance going on. Forget social media, that's a huge factor too. But if you just look at this from an economic perspective, this is what's going on. Um, okay, you'll hit the next slide. So we're gonna talk about what do we do with this. A couple things to remember. Walking with God requires discernment. There's no formula here of this is what you should do. You're gonna walk with God. Um, no formula for finding a spouse either. 
And remember, God is over the ordinary and the extraordinary. God works in these kind of typical economic patterns, but God is also bigger than that. And our greatest hope and joy is found in Christ, and it's okay to grieve singleness. And we're going to talk about that aspect in a bit. Okay, go to the next slide. So what do we do? In walking with young people and encouraging them to walk and talk with God in discernment, you now have this information of this is some of what's going on, peeling back the curtain and understanding these are some of the dynamics at play. So what do we want to do? How do you want to live in light of this? How do you want to invite a young person to discern life choices with God in light of these realities? So they might want to consider this in terms of professional choices. Um, and these are ideas from the book, largely. I think some are mine, but largely from the book. Do you want to consider what college am I choosing? Am I choosing a liberal arts college? That's where you're really going to find the 60-40 or worse. Or do I want to choose a tech school? But again, this is not a formula. It's, it's not, the answer is not, oh, I should make every decision in light of, of improving my dynamics in the dating culture. That's not, that's not, that could be a very anxious mindset actually and not walking and talking with God to say like oh my gosh I have to live my whole life around this in fear no that's not it but it is discerning with God what's God calling me to based on how he's made me based on my interest in marriage based on the way the world tends to work do I want to make some to what extent do I want to make decisions in light of these realities so a person might consider what college campus they choose choose what major they choose. Do they choose a major where they're going to be surrounded by others um, of the same sex? For example, typically female majors, education, psychology, design, male, typical male ma majors, philosophy, business. Um, what major am I going to choose? And what career path am I going to choose? Am I going to choose a career path where I'm going to be, if I'm a woman, uh, surrounded by other women? And that's going to make it harder to meet men. And I'm going to be all the more in oversupply and those types of environments. Again, it's not a formula, it's not saying every life decision, but it is, I invite you to encourage the folks you're walking with to be intentional and aware, saying, what is God calling to me, and how am I made? Do I have some interest in STEM if I'm a woman? And say, you know what, and you know what, let's say if I'm a lady and I kind of struggle in dating and socially putting myself out there, maybe it would be helpful to have these some structures and environments working in my favor. And this would be helpful to me. Um, and the same is true for if, if you're walking alongside a man and he's thinking about tech schools, the man's going to have, it's going to be a different culture there, which could be, could be a healthier culture. Um, but if he is struggling socially or how he feels in dating, that could be putting him in a really tough environment um, to navigate. Geographical choices. What cities a person chooses to live in? I'm going to pull my notes here. So this book, what's fascinating, in the back of the book, it has charts of all the numbers and percents of men and women in different cities, in different age brackets, in different colleges. It's pretty extensive, the numbers that are there. But I'm going to read you some of the, the cities that are known to be especially tough in the, for folks who have graduated from college and the imbalance ratio in cities where it's a little bit better. So the bad is considered New York. Lots of Ladies say, I'm going to go to New York after college. It's going to be rough. Be careful. Um, but be aware. And maybe that's where God is calling you to. Again, it's not, you're not going to make every decision in light of this. 
Um, Atlanta is rough, Washington, D.C., Honolulu, Hawaii, Portland, Oregon, New Orleans, San Bernardino, California, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Those are just some of the top places where the dynamics are off. Cities that are better. Three of the top five are actually in California that are more balanced. Um, Santa Clara County, San Jose, AKA Man Jose, has way more men than women. And this is where the researcher really focused in and studied dating culture. Because this is a city where it's the most, the other way around. We actually have more men with college degrees than women. It is a whole different dating scene. He described that women are treated better on dates, more money is spent on dates, there's more commitment, longer-term marriage, or longer-term relationships. Marriage is happening earlier. It's a different world in that dynamic. So if you're walking alongside a woman, and she's trying to think, like, where do I want to live? And, and she's just genuinely choosing among different choices. Well, which would God be calling her to make a decision in life? I don't know. Um, San Diego is positive. There's only 10% more college women than men. That's positive. Staten Island, New York. So this is interesting. It's very nearby Manhattan, 9% um, more single men. But this is where you see the educational difference. It's more working class. It's more blue collar versus white collar. Um, and that's okay, and we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Leisure choices. So this is kind of the lowest hanging fruit in terms of making decisions. What hobbies does a person wanna pursue? Are they interested in hobbies that typically draw the opposite gender? And would this be worthwhile to kind of pursue a hobby that they would enjoy anyway, but kind of making the decision saying, I'm gonna put myself around the ladies, more men, and be in demand in that environment. So hobbies that are typically, where men typically hang out in the cycling world. This was my case, actually. I did road biking, I became very interested in it, and I hung out in cycling groups, and it felt different as a woman surrounded by lots of men compared to in college. It was a different environment. And I dated folks from the cycling community versus never anyone from church, because it tends to be 60, 40 or worse um, at church. Bowling tends to be male-dominated. Chess, guitar, ultimate frisbee, car shows, skiing, fishing, martial arts. So if a woman has an interest in one of those things, this could be a great avenue to get to meet people of the opposite sex. Um, men, on the other hand, I, I struggle to come up with great ideas for women hobbies. I feel like men, it's like there's just more groups. I don't know, so maybe you all can help me. I think of book clubs, dancing, like swing dancing, tends to draw more women. My husband was really into swing dancing, and he said his dating experience there was great. Um, <laughs> but we didn't, I didn't be in there. I didn't meet him in the cycling community. But we both kind of had these experiences of hobbies that were populated by the opposite sex. It was a very positive experience in our dating world. Um, but didn't lead to marriage. See, God doesn't always work through those kind of typical things. Um, what other hobbies can you think of that tend to be female-dominated that a man might enjoy? Maybe artistic pursuits? Yeah, art of some kind, yeah. That's good. But you get, to, you get the idea. And I think this is, again, kind of the lowest hanging fruit if you're walking alongside someone who's struggling. Like, is there a hobby or something they would like to pursue that would put them in a different environment and really be really helpful? And again, I just want to draw this out. Maybe God's calling them to make no decisions in light of these dynamics. What is God calling a person to in discernment? That's the key. If you'll hit the next slide. Um, so more on walking and talking with God. Things to be aware of. Dating choices. Uh, encourage folks to assess their values versus the cultural context. So this is both for men and women. To be able to say, okay, this is kind of how the dynamic tends to be at play right now. So for men, do you find yourself 
pursuing kind of the physical side of women more and being more critical or scrutinizing around physical appearance or expecting more physically in the relationship versus really saying, how can I love and care for this woman that I'm dating well? Like, if I'm a man, do I kind of get caught up in that? Because that's just the way the current is flowing. So to stop and assess and say, is this what I really want to be choosing? And to be intentional. For a woman, the other side, to say, am I taking on this critical judgment towards my appearance? Am I being um, critical of myself? Do I feel the pressure to go physically faster in the relationship than I would otherwise choose. So it's kind of, let's step out of the current and decide what your values are um, and not just having them swayed by the culture. Consider character versus career. So this idea of educational intermarriage, that we don't just have to marry people who have the same level of education of us and being able to really stop and say, what makes a good marriage? What makes two people fit well together? And there's a lot more than education um, that would make two people live a life well together. And really saying, does this person know how to do healthy relationship? Do they know how to love and care for another person? Do they know how to be loyal? Do they know how to have sacrifice? Um, those types of things. And really, and this can lead a person to be more open to people without the same degrees that they have, that they might otherwise just kind of look past. Um, I think of my husband has some friends who have become my friends. They've moved away. But if you look at kind of who they are, the man the woman from an educational perspective, the woman is a lot more intellectually inclined than the man. And he's a great man. And they have a wonderful marriage. Um, so it's just what, you know, what is it to look past? And actually, in my high school growing up, there was a line from the mission statement that said, we value character over career. So it was kind of funny that like, after all these days, that really was a great mission statement. It makes sense. Um, things to watch out for, length of dating relationships. And this is both for men and women. Because of this phenomenon, as years go on, being careful not to be in a relationship for a long time that's not going to end in marriage. And this is both for a man to be mindful and aware of like what it is to be stealing a person's time. Again, there could be good reasons to be in a relationship for a long time, but being careful and mindful. And a woman saying, like, okay, do I want to be giving this amount of time to one particular dating relationship if this doesn't work out, you know? Um, there's the idea of using ultimatums where if a woman wants to say, like, okay, you know, kind of need to fish or cut bait after a certain amount of time, we have to be, that has to be done carefully. I wouldn't want it to be manipulative. Don't want any man to feel pressured into making a decision. Like, that's not healthy and good. Um, this is, again, discernment, walking with God. The use of an ultimatum can change the dynamic. Um, it can create a sense of scarcity, but again, it needs to be done very judiciously and with care and not to create a sense of manipulation. That's not going to be healthy. Adjusting expectations for women and then to say, you know, I may be single longer. Life doesn't start at marriage. Life is now when I'm, si when I'm single. Um, to be able to embrace life as God is providing it, even if um, a person's expectations growing up aren't being met. Uh, and I want to go back, I forgot something on another slide to note. You may experience this in ministry, where a woman who is especially gifted and seems especially awesome, like she has so much going for her, she's beautiful, she has these attainments, she's gifted, but she's really not dating. Like, what is going on there? 
And that's how the author begins. He's like, I know these phenomenal women. They are awesome in all of these ways. And they are not dating. Like, what explains that? And he, um, he made sense of it from an economic perspective. So if you think of an attractive woman in all ways, attractive, in Starbucks. Let's say the Starbucks on the college campus. And the man sitting there thinking about her, his experience is going to be, wow, she is so amazing. And there's one of her. And there's all these guys, so I don't have a chance. He's going to perceive the economics differently because she's so exceptional. And so he's going to think, oh, I shouldn't ask her out, but she would say no. So she, she might actually be getting asked out less because the perception of the economics is different. There's one of her and there's many men. And also sometimes women who do have a lot going for them like this, they're aware of it in a healthy way. They know their value and their worth worth, but it could lead them to a place where they start turning down Mr. Perfectly Acceptable while they're looking for Mr. Perfect and being kind of extra, again, we don't want, this is not about asking people to settle in any ways, but to say, how can I be open to good choices in my life? Okay, we have the next slide. So I want to pause and say, what are you learning? What's surprising? What's unexpected? Questions? I think the, the little X is over there on the side, just a stark reality after college of, of those that meet and marry and the way it gets kind of worse into mid, you know, into your 20s and that's, that's a stark reality. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we have to remember, this is if we're looking at college degrees, but yes, but that's typically how people organize their social life. Right. And so in these are choices in life. What is it to hang out in other areas of town or different groups where if it just would be a, a, a blue-collar place versus a white-collar place, just to change the dynamics and, and, and break down some of that, get away from it. So yeah. I've been trying to figure out how to have conversations about faith um, because often gals, single gals are... To, are um, relatives of mine specifically are saying, well, that pool is even smaller. They're not necessarily naming the education thing, but they're naming the faith mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. And so they're, you know, they're dating people who aren't uh, the same faith um, and usually coming to me and asking the question, well, so is that okay? And, um, and I'm kind of observing and going, well, I don't know. You, you need to find someone because you're naming this anxiety and, and mm -hmm. difficulty mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. singlehood and um, and not that you missed your chance, but it's almost like now it's getting harder. It's going to continue mm -hmm. to get harder. Mm -hmm. um, so I would be curious how you kind of, have you looked at how faith yeah. fits into this? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like how people segment and, and restrict their choices based on mm -hmm. different faiths? Yeah, that's a good question. You might know some of the, some of the Barna research and the numbers of men and women in churches compared to, I think it's 60-40 or worse. It might be 70-30. Yeah, and I couldn't speak off the top of my head, but definitely, Barna just did this huge global study on adolescents and young adults, and the research is fascinating, even in looking at how many are interested in faith versus not. But when you look, you know, as I think of your question and your, your response, 
I, I think that scarcity mindset is something you can really speak to when you look at a young person or a young woman who's saying, can I compromise in this way? Um, carrying that out to how might that look for you down the road? Let's just yeah. walk that through. What other yeah. things are you saying yes to that might be painful down the road, right? Because that compromise is a really impactful compromise. Um, and they probably can look to other people who have made decisions or compromises in faith or missionary dating, like he's gonna get mm -hmm. a little bit of faith from me, he'll go softer um, down the road. And, and so just helping to reality test a little bit about that. I mean, getting back to the yeah. trust in God and what are some other, what are ways that I might not have power to choose how this disparity is happening in this context. But are there things that I can actively do to put myself in places where I could meet people that do have faith? Like my daughter met her husband on a bus to Uganda on a medical mission, right? Um, so yeah, kind of like what you're saying. And I think as you're walking alongside these people, this person, really being able to empathize with, it is hard. It yeah. is hard. These are difficult dynamics. And how can she be empowered in making certain choices? And I think these words are great around like, play this out. So if you compromise in this area, how's this gonna go years down the road? What's this gonna look like? Um, what are the challenges that lie ahead? But you understand the drive to do that. The drive to compromise yeah. is, wow, I really want to be married. And there are fewer men around who are following Christ and in my social circles. And so I'm pushed to, like, I feel pushed to do this. And I feel compelled to do it, even though it's not going to be helpful. Down the road. Yes. I would say one of the things that's sort of bubbling up for me, I have five daughters ranging in age from 16 to 8. So that's five years. It's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just sort of interested. And obviously, we're going to move into that. And I tend to be more of one that's like, if you, you know, if you just do life and you're okay, then, then things will be okay. It'll work out. It'll work out. And what I'm seeing with data is the reality of today, which may be different than my generation or the one before, is it may be more appropriate to be, have some strategic decisions that you make. And that seems a little bit over-controlling to me naturally, because I'm kind of like, you know, you don't have to control everything. You don't have to script everything. But when you... When you look at the realities of what especially women will be facing, you go, oh, well, maybe you can't just go get a job and settle in a city and you'll find somebody because there's not as many. So it's interesting that that's kind of poking at my nature to not do those things, but saying maybe that's legitimate. Yeah. And again, this truth is good and it's empowering. And it's, I just want to be so clear and careful of like, and it's not a call to anxiety, just like you're saying, because you're, you're, you're typically in this like, okay, it'll, you know, I don't need to be controlling, I don't need to be driven by anxiety, and that's not what you know this is about, but it's about awareness and understanding to faithfully walk with God and to trust Him and know that God is good and in control and all these truths of who God is, no matter what. Was that a hand? Or? Well, it wasn't, but I, I have two daughters um, that are 25 and 27. My oldest just got married, uh, met her husband on a bus. They're both in med school. My other daughter studied great texts and is marrying somebody who's a carpenter. Um, I do think the bigger conversation when, that I was it's so important to me, and you've hit on it so many times, is how might I use this to be able to align with and 
kind of empathize, come alongside and say, what kind of pressures are you feeling? Like that pressure you feel to compromise how you dress or how you behave, wow, that's real. Like I get where that comes from. Instead of how we can typically engage young women and young men in pointing a finger out and saying, like, look how you're dressing, that kind of shame approach, right? you're not good enough because here you are. But to really align with, Let's just talk about the bigger picture of what's happening in the world around us and why there's this cultural movement here. And you may be right, boys are a little more demanding of some things. Let's talk about that. Look at what the data opens up for conversations that we can have about the realities that our young people are facing on college campuses, right? When girls say, I feel more pressure, you know what? Even in the church, even in the church. So can we talk about that and set up some of our conversations around hey, this is the world's way, but it's not God's way for us. And this is a good desire to want marriage, to want to be dating. These are good desires, and the way the culture is going, it puts these pressures that are not helpful. Um, okay, let's shift. There we go. Okay, so we're not going to cover all of this, and that was not the plan, so don't be alarmed. For an increasing number of people, the ambiguity of singleness. So we're shifting here, and we're saying, we talked about datonomic realities. More people are single longer. How do we understand the experience of singleness? How do we live well in singleness? Um, I'm, I'm taking a section, elements of a, what can be a much larger conversation. What you see in green, it's a little hard to tell. That's what we're going to focus on. The nature of what is lost in get, getting married later or not at all for someone who wants to be married is ambiguous. It's hard to define exactly what is lost in not having this person who could show up tomorrow or never. Um, it's hard to name that loss. Uh, it can lead to stunted grief. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about how we can address this ambiguous loss. All right, you'll click ahead. So, singleness is the loss of a missing person. I'm not going to go into all the technicalities for time. It's ambiguous loss. The person is physically absent. They're not there, but they're psychologically present. If someone desires a spouse, the idea of this person, this man or woman, is alive in the mind, and the ambiguity of presence and absence is hard to navigate. It, tends to result in greater anxiety and depression. We'll leave it there. There's more that can be said from that research. The loss is hard to define, and it lacks closure. Again, this person can be found tomorrow or never, and there's never going to be an answer to it. God's never going to send an email that says, and you will, will not have Like, that's not coming. And so it's very hard to live in the ambiguity of tomorrow or never and not knowing. Um, ambiguity disrupts the grieving process. When we lose someone to death, it's clear. They're not coming back. We can go through the stages of grief better, but this not knowing and this day by day rip the hairs, um, the band aid rips the hairs off the arm one moment at a time, it's kind of the experience of this loss for someone who really wants to be married. Every day they live without this person, there's a loss associated with it. And is it ending or is it not? It's hard. That's, that was my turmoil in the limbo years. Um, so, associated with more anxiety and depression, it's hard to live in this state of not knowing. You'll click the next slide. So what does it sound like? I find myself wondering if I'll find a spouse. Um, it's hard to plan the future. When I meet someone, I wonder, is this person my spouse? That creates a turmoil dynamic. You remember P.D. Eastman's book, Are You My Mother? A little bird goes around, are you my mother, are you my mother? That can be kind of the experience of someone who's single and wants to be married. Are you my spouse, are you my spouse? And it's hard to live in that space. Carly Rae Jepsen has a song and one of the lyrics is, before you came in my life, I missed you so bad. Christina Perry, I've loved you for a thousand years. This is this, this sense of 
longing and wanting a person even though you've never met them. It's hard to live in that space. You'll click the next slide. Four keys for addressing ambiguous loss. We're going to hit on these briefly. And from a Christian perspective, you'll just kind of click through these real fast. Identify the dynamics. We're going to look at each of these. Okay, next. Okay, identify the dynamics. So if you're walking alongside a person, being able to say, you're experiencing an ambiguous loss. You've got a person who's psychologically present, physically absent. Um, there's a lack of clarity in what is lost. The outcome is uncertain. You're either getting married or not. We know that those are the two out, out possible outcomes, but we don't know what, what it is. The loss um, is unclear. Complex grief. Grief can get frozen, get stuck in a certain stage of grief because of the ambiguity. A person could rapidly cycle through the grief because of the lack of closure. Um, we can do what's called anticipatory grief, where we start grieving something that actually hasn't happened as a way to try to get control over the grief. Um, so if, if I'm single and I want to get married and have kids, and even though I could biologically have children, I could start grieving the fact that I'm never going to have kids out of fear that that's going to happen because if I grieve this now, then maybe I have a sense of control over it and that feels a little better even though I could. So anticipatory grief um, and disenfranchised grief. This is where society doesn't tend to recognize the loss that's happening. You're not going to go to Starbucks and find a card that says we're so sorry for the losses of singleness that you're experiencing. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get a meal train because of the losses of singleness. Um, there's ambiguity around status. How do other people perceive me as a single? Do they think, oh wow, that's great, life is easy for you, or oh wow, I'm so sorry for you? Not knowing how people perceive is difficult, not knowing, knowing what to make out of it, meaning, not knowing how to answer the why question, what does this mean about me or not? That can uh, create a lot of turmoil, uh, not knowing for how long singleness is gonna last, again, is this forever? or uh, tomorrow I'm going to find this, the special person, and power of singleness. To what extent can I do something to get unsingle? And there's ambiguity in all of those dimensions of life. And that is really hard to live in that space. We could unpack all of those in a great deal. But the point is ambiguity. It's hard to navigate life. Ambiguity. Next slide. Learning. Um, oh, sorry. Let me go back. And I know I'm taking a couple of extra minutes. Please feel free to leave if you need to. Um, from a Christian perspective, we do have some clarity of what is lost in the absence of a spouse. We know that God created men and women for each other, and the longing and desire for marriage is good. So that can help us name and understand what the loss is. Um, all right, next slide again. Learning to accept the ambiguity, to come to terms with it. And this is so ironic. This was actually very helpful to me, and I remember a therapy session where I was receiving therapy, and I reckoned with this dynamic, and it was like it felt freeing. The uncertainty is certain. Okay, this is weird. But to be able to say, you're never going to have an answer, and we know that, like my brain could compute that better. The fact that the uncertainty is certain. That uncertainty is going nowhere. And it's like, okay, so this is how I'm going to live, with this certain uncertainty. Kind of ironic. Both and dialectics. Being able to say, there are trials of singleness, there are joys of singleness. There is some power I have in singleness to find a person, but God is ultimately in control. I have agency, but I also don't have all the power. Um, knowing God's character. God's character is certain and unmoving and good. And being able to lean into that as a single whose life is filled with uncertainty and ambiguity can be especially powerful. Um, that God's character is good. He is in control. He is sovereign. All of these truths that we know of God can be really helpful. Thinking about people's stories in the Bible. Uh, so we think about Joseph, sold into slavery. In slavery, we read his story and we know the outcome. We know that he becomes second in command and he reunites with his brothers and all of this goodness. But he lived his life day by day by day by day. 
in the jail cell, not knowing what was going to happen. And that's how we live today. And so what is it to enter into the characters in the Bible, the stories of the Bible, um, like Job as well, and all the loss that he went through? He didn't know how God was going to restore parts of his life to him, and that's how we live ourselves. But there's also Paul's story, where he prayed for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and as our understanding today is it wasn't removed. Um, and he lived his life day by day by day. Uh, family gamble, this is kind of a technical term for if a person is stuck in how I make life decisions, not knowing if I'm going to find a spouse or not, like, do I buy a house or do I wait for someone? Do I take a tri trip for Europe or do I wait for the spouse? These things that we typically think of doing in marriage, creating a family gamble where you just say, I'm going to live my life as if I am not getting married or I am. This doesn't mean a person no longer wants to be married or they have no hope, but it's just a way of making decisions to get out of the turmoil, model tolerating ambiguity. As you're walking along singles, this is so key, 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 key. To be able to sit with them in ambiguity and in the not knowing, because this is where they are. And if you feed them kind of, oh, it'll all work out, God has someone for everyone, some singles might kind of take that, but then you're actually stealing where God, the reality of where God has from them. Because remember, God uses suffering, and we don't want to take someone's suffering as much as it's hard to see people suffering. It's hard to walk alongside them. But we know that God has them there for a moment or for a, for a time, um, and he can do great good. So we don't want to steal suffering. And then for the person who you offer kind of the cliche to, God has someone for you, and they don't want to take it, they're going to feel very unknown and like you don't get it. I had a friend, her therapist, she was single, her therapist said, oh, I'm sure God has someone for you. She fired the therapist. She never went back. The therapist basically denied her very struggle was, I don't know if God's going to have someone for me. So model tolerating the ambiguity and sitting with it yourself can be such a gift to those that you're walking alongside, sitting in the I don't know. All right, next slide. Um, we're almost done here. Finding meaning and hope. In the midst of suffering and struggle, finding hope and meaning is so powerful. Asking questions like, what is God doing? How is God changing me? Um, hope deferred makes the heart sick. This is a real reality. Finding both big hope and who God is, that God is good, God has a plan and a purpose for a person's life, whether they're married or single, have kids or not. Little hope, a certain, having a certain plan or strategies that a person can take to try to bring about life in the way they want it. Grieving with hope um, that all will be renewed one day. There's so much more that can be said there. Nurturing self, next slide, we're almost done, I promise. Uh, mutual connection support. So much is lost, and you think what a spouse brings to life. Somebody who's long-term present, daily present. So looking to meet those unmet needs in ways through other people, pouring into long-term relationships, having a daily person um, who's there, Celebrating singles, the, the pathway of marriage, I know I'm going so fast, the pathway of marriage has lots of community celebrations, engagement, bridal showers, the wedding, baby showers, all these things that a single person doesn't have. So what are things that are single, going on in a single person's life that you can celebrate and move towards? Work accomplishments, um, competition events that they're a part of, ways that you can celebrate them when things are going on in their life, moving towards them. Inviting singles to serve in church, serving breeds belonging. All right, next slide, I think we're done. So we don't have a lot of time for this discussion because I've taken too much of your time. But thanks for being here. Um, we'd love to connect further. If you'd like to, um, you can check out the Blue Center for the Family website. You can see all of our new resources that we have to help you help uh, folks in your congregation strengthen healthy relationships. Thank you. All right. Thank you.